The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Honing Diagnostic and Management Skills, The Role of the Pediatrician in the New Era of Rett Syndrome Management. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerreview.com forward slash UDJ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a peer review presentation of Honing Diagnostic and Management Skills, the role of the pediatrician in the new era of Rett Syndrome Management. I'm David Lieberman. I'm joined by Dr. Eric Marsh here. Uh, this symposium is not sponsored, endorsed, or accredited by the American Academy of Pediatrics. The uh, uh, support of improving patient care, a peer review uh, institute of medical education is jointly accredited by the ACCME, the ACPE, and the ANCC to provide continuing education for the healthcare team. Peerview Institute for Medical Edu Education designates this live activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Acadia Pharmaceuticals. Our goals for today, we're going to recognize signs and symptoms suggesting Rett syndrome in order to shorten the time to diagnosis. We're looking to provide optimal care for our patients with Rett syndrome in accordance with guideline recommendations and in collaboration with other clinicians. We're going to assess the data surrounding new and investigational treatments for Rett syndrome. So we're going to talk about Madison. Um, you know, she's... Uh, been developing typically, and what we are going to uh, talk about with Rett syndrome is how uh, the first things we'll see is a stagnation in development uh, followed by a regression. And what we're seeing here is a at least a partial regression in communication. There has been a regression in uh, gross motor skills, and there's some hand stereotypies uh, involving clapping and wringing her hands. So the initial presentation in Rett is a child who has uh, uh, been born following a normal pregnancy and an uncomplicated delivery. Uh, normal neurologic and physical development uh, have taken place until 6 to 18 months of age, where uh, then the child shows some uh, uh, failure to progress and develop milestones, and then regression follows. Uh, with this regression, you see either a partial or complete loss of acquired spoken language, a partial or complete loss of purposeful hand skills. You see gait abnormalities, either impaired gait or uh, the absence of the ability to walk. You see the development of hand stereotypies, which is, are these hand wringing, hand squeezing, uh, clapping, tapping, mouthing, washing, and rubbing hand movements. So these, are the, uh, these four features define classic Rett syndrome. For atypical Rett syndrome, you need two out of the four main criteria that I just showed you. There has to be regression as part of that uh, presentation. Then uh, the uh, patient with atypical Rett has to fulfill five out of these 11 supportive criteria. Uh, breathing disturbances while awake, that means uh, breath holding or hyperventilation, bruxism, uh, teeth grinding while awake, impaired sleep, either falling asleep or sleep maintenance, abnormal muscle tone. Typically, it's hypotonia early on, and later on, uh, hypertonia develops. Peripheral vasomotor disturbances with cool extremities can be discolored, mottled, bluish. Scoliosis or kyphosis, growth retardation, uh, hands and feet that are small, 
inappropriate laughing or screaming spells, uh, diminished response to pain, and intense eye communication or eye pointing. So five out of these 11 would be necessary to help support an atypical RUT diagnosis. Now, the multi-centered longitudinal natural history study that we uh, conducted since 2003 showed that um, the mean age of diagnosis uh, for typical RET syndrome was uh, 2.7 years, and for atypical RET was 3.8 years. Uh, some early signs and symptoms can be subtle and not appreciated by clinicians, but increased awareness of clinical features and use of genetic testing is resulting in earlier identification and diagnosis of RET syndrome. Right now, a lot of our genetic testing is coming from results of exome sequencing. Uh, diagnosis is often made by a neurologist, a developmental pediatrician, or a geneticist. During the time that this uh, paper was uh, published, it was back in 2015, only 5% of typical RET diagnoses were made by pediatricians. Uh, but we want you know, our clinicians to maintain a high index of suspicion for signs and subtle early uh, delay or regression signs. And uh, uh, girls can be boys as well, but uh, between six months and three years of age. Uh, some things that would tend to have a, a later diagnosis would be first the development and the loss of more advanced skills uh, and some unusual stereotypic hand movements. So uh, in the differential uh, of Rett syndrome, uh, some patients are uh, diagnosed with uh, autism uh, and some uh, properly so, some not th th that some of those don't show those autistic uh, features as much after the regression uh, has, has finished. Uh, Angelman syndrome, cerebral palsy, Neuronal ceroid lipofusinosis, uh, non-specific developmental delays are, are all possibilities as well. And some other things that um, are more non-specific are things like the seizures, the reflux, the teeth grinding, drilling, hypotonia. And uh, while a decreased rate of head growth is common in Rett syndrome, not all individuals uh, become microcephalic. Uh, a normal head circumference uh, can uh, occur with Rett syndrome. So sometimes it's uh, not in the head of the clinician because they were expecting uh, microcephaly. So uh, in uh, evaluating RET, uh, some features for history should be, you know, attending, taking time to uh, review developmental milestones, notably regression in hand skills and spoken language. Uh, during the physical examination, uh, you know, you should take note of impaired growth, decelerating head growth or microcephaly, and hand stereotypies. And uh, I should say that RET is a clinical diagnosis. So having a mutation in the MECP2 gene that's responsible for 95% of patients with classic RET and somewhere between 40 and 75% of patients with atypical RET is neither necessary nor sufficient for the diagnosis of RET syndrome. Um, uh, so at this time, we we're basing on our clinical features, um, but a lot of our patients are coming to our attention uh, after the MECP2 gene has been noted on, a, as I said, a, a, a micro uh, exome sequencing. So to just review the four stages of uh, Rett syndrome that were uh, uh, put out by Ben Hogberg early on, uh, stage one is when there's uh, a stagnation in development. Stage two is where there's a regression of previously acquired skills. Um, during this stage, hand stereotypies emerge and gait abnormalities can emerge. Stage three is the pseudo-stationary stage where uh, the individual with Rett syndrome spends most of their life. Um, there can be stabilization of cognitive abilities and improvement in behavioral symptoms. There can be improvement in uh, uh, purposeful hand use, per, uh, improvement in communication, whether it's uh, verbal or nonverbal communication 
Uh, their uh, seizures usually come on uh, during this pseudostationary stage, and other comorbidities like scoliosis develop as the individual gets older. Um, in stage four, not all patients actually enter stage four. It's a late motor deterioration uh, where these patients show decreased mobility. They start to show more Parkinsonian features like a shuffling gait and tremor. Uh, their scoliosis uh, have, may have progressed to the pa a point where should, they need a, a posterior spinal fusion. Um, and uh, this uh, map doesn't really show you how long the girls and women with Rett syndrome live, but we expect most of them to live into their at least their 70s. Just a word about Rett syndrome and MECP2 mutations in boys. Uh, previous reports indicated very few males had MECP2 mutations, uh, and lots of the early reports of the boys had either somatic mutations or sex chromosome anomalies like Klinefelter syndrome. And in a, uh, a paper published in 2019, Newell et al. Uh, reviewed uh, some findings of 30 males with mutations. Uh, some of these showed atypical RET features where they did show regression. Um, there were uh, others that showed cognitive impairment or progressive encephalopathy. Uh, there's a neonatal encephalopathy uh, group that is uh, clearly uh, severely impacted early on. And just a couple of patients showed uh, classic RET, and those were normally uh, those with some somatic mutations. Um, so in this paper, there was a, a term used called male ret encephalopathy, um, where uh, these individuals, even if they have an atypical ret presentation, they don't have the, the, the six to 18 month period of normal development. Their initial development uh, was more uh, severely impacted, as you might expect uh, with uh, uh, boys having a single X chromosome and the MECP2 gene residing on the X chromosome. Um, so they might lack some of the uh, other features that we would see in uh, classic Rett syndrome, like these, this eye pointing. Um, uh, they're, they're, uh, some of their hand stereotypy is more, more transient uh, than, than sustained, but um, they fulfill criteria for this uh, male Rett encephalopathy. So the common wisdom that Rett occurs only in females uh, contributes to some diagnostic errors and delays. All right, so thinking back about Madison, um, with uh, the, the progression in uh, uh, language, uh, the problem with uh, her gait, uh, we uh, see the hand stereotypes. We don't hear about her, um, whether there was any uh, uh, impairment in her fine motor skills, so she might have atypical or uh, classic, and we just don't have the full picture here. Um, some of this workup could include a brain MRI, which would be very informative. Um, uh, exome sequencing, as I me uh, mentioned, which is also uh, becoming more standard of care. An uh, EEG would be very helpful if there's any indication of seizures to see if there's any uh, uh, epileptic encephalopathy that's interfering with development. Um, we could also consider doing some uh, metabolic screens if there's some other um, comorbidities like recurrent emesis or if the regression occurred uh, during a time of illness. Um, and also to remember just uh, looking at MECP2 gene testing for those girls with moderate to severe global developmental delay. So I'm just going to talk briefly about Livia, a 34-month-old girl uh, whose parents were also concerned about her development. Uh, first, she had uh, headbanging episodes, uh, then uh, became then developed some regression uh, uh, she says mama, data when she's upset, but is otherwise nonverbal. Uh, she was diagnosed with autism at 28 months of age. 
She's had repetitive rocking behavior since 10 to 11 months of age. She had some hand flapping and repetitive hand wringing um, since she was two years of age. She spins in circles. She puts everything in her mouth. She grinds her teeth during the day. In terms of her hand function, she never developed a pincer grasp, but she did start to have a regression in hand use starting in 18, 18 to 24 months of age where she used to hold uh, baby dolls, and now she doesn't touch or hold any objects other than her bottle. In terms of her communication, uh, she babbled at six months, and mama was said non-specifically at eight to nine months, and she still babbles. Uh, hand stereotypies, as I said, uh, showed up with this hand flapping or uh, repetitive wringing of her hands since two years of age. In terms of her uh, gross motor skills, she walked independently at 13 to 14 months of age, she climbed stairs at two years of age. Uh, her gait at the time was not apraxic or dyspraxic, meaning there's no issues with coordination or balance. But her gait became more clumsy at three years of age, three years, two months, and then she stopped walking and standing uh, at four years, two months. So in this case, this patient's regression was a much more staggered uh, uh, than you might see typically. Uh, this child has some uh, breathing disturbances when awake. She holds her breath for 20 seconds at a time without perioral cyanosis. She has bruxism. She has uh, impaired sleep. She wakes up shaking from what seems to be confusional arousals. She has abnormal muscle tone due to hypotonia. She has peripheral vasomotor disturbance where her feet get cool. And when she cries or goes into a warm bathtub, her cheeks, chest, and thighs turn red and are warm to the touch. Uh, in this child, there's no concerns yet for scoliosis, kyphosis, growth retardation. She has normal hands and feet size. Uh, she does not have inappropriate laughing spells, um, but she does have some screaming spells for no reason that last up to five minutes at a time, including in the middle of the night. She has a diminished response to pain. Uh, she does not have intense eye communication. So uh, this child had an atypical representation with six out of the 11 uh, supportive criteria met. All right, I'm going to now turn over the podium to Dr. Eric Marsh uh, to talk about uh, the burden of disease for patients and families. Thank you, David. Um, thank you for uh, giving a really nice overview of kind of the early signs and the diagnostic criteria for Rett syndrome. What we're now going to talk a little bit about is um, how we manage individuals with Rett syndrome and trying to reduce uh, the burden for the families. So... In uh, 2019, the International Rett Syndrome Foundation uh, pulled together a group of physicians who spent a lot of time taking care of Rett. These physicians were all actively involved in the natural history study that the NIH supported from 2005 all the way to 2020. And the 17-year natural history study collected an awful lot of data about what to expect to see and what we see in rat. And so those physicians with experience, as well as the data, we all got together and thought about what would be the most relevant um, primary care concerns for uh, pediatricians and other care providers and how to treat individuals with rat. Um, so we started with using a modified Delphi approach where we went back and forth over um, ideas that should be part of these uh, guidelines. We then sent these guidelines out for external review and public comment, including families and other uh, patient advocacy group members and other physicians. And then with that uh, guidance, um, we further refined the input and put together 
um, a set of guidelines. The guidelines that were published in BMJ uh, Pediatrics Open in 2020 talked about, you know, thinking about the overall multi-systemic issues uh, of RAT that require both primary care providers as well as other health professionals to manage the complex uh, medical comorbidities and in the setting of the patient, the whole family, um, and the community as at large. And then given the, the fact that the life expectancy of individuals with RET is not shortened, and as we used to think it was shortened, we now know that many of these individuals live into their 40s, 50s, 60s, that it's important that many individuals know how to care for um, these individuals with special needs because they will be uh, interacting with the community for years and years. And one of the rationales for putting together these uh, treatment guidelines is that if you look at the map of where the RET centers of excellence were, they're kind of, um, you know, highlighted within uh, the East Coast, and half the country has very little uh, um, individuals who have lots of experience uh, with RET. So we thought it was really important to get out guidelines to allow um, pediatricians, primary care physicians, um, and even internist as these individuals become adults to, to know how best to care for these individuals. And so, David, I want you to tell us a little bit about these guidelines. So um, when we uh, started thinking about creating these guidelines uh, in this 2020 publication, we kind of had in mind some of the uh, uh, work that had been done before in Down syndrome and trying to model that. We looked at uh, what features of Rett syndrome were to emerge during each of these uh, uh, phases of life, early childhood, uh, late childhood, uh, post-puberty, and adulthood. And so in uh, in each section, we kind of recommended some uh, assessments that should be done uh, um, by the pediatricians and by uh, the internists as they get to adult years, uh, what surveillance should be done, uh, what uh, needs should be planned at each uh, age group, and what specialists would likely be consulted so Rett syndrome, in addition to having those, uh, you know, four uh, uh, main features and the 11 uh, supportive features, it's a multi-system disease. Uh, you know, the MECB2 gene uh, is absent um, uh, from various parts of the body. So we have issues with uh, seizures, with epilepsy, with GI problems, especially uh, motility problems. So constipation, uh, oropharyngeal dysphagia, gastroesophageal reflux. Uh, problems chewing, swallowing, teeth grinding, growth failure, abnormal muscle tone, uh, and scoliosis. And so these um, are, these are pro problems that emerge as the child gets older, and uh, many of them uh, uh, develop, for example, like sleep problems, uh, breathing irregularities. Uh, as I said, the, these are hyperventilation periods or breath holding. Um, there's also some non-epileptic events called rest spells, uh, which are probably due to sympathetic nervous system overdrive uh, and involve uh, increases in blood pressure and uh, tachycardia. Um, there are autonomic dysfunction with vasomotor disturbances, uh, cardiac dysrhythmia, with, uh, we, we monitor for prolonged QT syndrome, and uh, pseudobulbar symptoms with inappropriate laughter and crying spells. Um, so it's a, a, a you know we we need a, a kind of a team of doctors. Uh, often when uh, the the uh, primary care uh, or neurologist can't manage all of these features, and that might involve uh, the use of a, a gastroenterologist and an orthopedic surgeon. So the health supervision checklist, and uh, you can uh, download as a practice aid. 
Um, there's uh, uh, baseline MECP2 testing that's recommended uh, that would also help uh, counsel families on results. And uh, the recommendation is to refer to genetic counseling if appropriate. Um, uh, individuals with Rett syndrome should have uh, regular wellness checkups and screenings. They should have regular immunizations, including uh, influenza. You uh, uh, Note, it's going to take some extra time to see these patients. Many of them may come in in wheelchairs and uh, have braces that need to be put on and off during the visit. And as I mentioned to some of these, this list, uh, some of our other, uh, colleagues are orthopedics, physiatrists, uh, gastroenterologists, uh, urologists, um, uh, developmental pediatricians. We have uh, we refer them often to communication centers, and uh, the neurologists uh, help to manage the seizures or movement disorders like dystonia that are seen. So, uh, an important uh, aspect of the care of patients with Rett syndrome is the psychosocial issues, both for the patient and their families. Uh, we try to take time to assess uh, social, familial, and educational concerns at visits. Uh, we want to consider financial, emotional, and physical effects of Rett syndrome, including sibling and parent well-being. Uh, vigilance regarding safety of home environment is important, especially in the context of a medically fragile patient. Um, educational enrichment programs, government-sponsored programs, and other agency support services uh, should be provided to the family, uh, including listings of home care providers, uh, respite care, uh, which are critical both for the family and the individual. And we, uh, uh, around the time of, uh, before they're becoming 18, addressing guardianship and conservatorship uh, before adulthood. So um, current FDA guidance advocates incorporating the affected individual's voice in development or the caregiver's voice when affected individuals have cognitive limitations. Um, uh, caregivers of participants in the U.S. Natural History Study uh, of Rett were asked to identify the three top concerns affecting their children uh, with 21 predefined concerns uh, uh, developed from literature reviews, expert input, and caregiver input. Um, and uh, one of the op options was to select other. And uh, Eric, should I, do you want to uh, continue on this one? Is the, um, sure, the, I can. So we recently just published a paper on these uh, caregiver concerns where we had the data from over 700 typical developing, uh, typical RAT, uh, a number of atypical RAT, people with other MECP2 mutations. And we compared this to individuals with MECP2 duplication syndrome, which is a whole nother lecture, um, CDKL5 related disorder and FOXG1. And we, um, ranked these by the parents' priorities who they ranked three and the major concerns that came out were one was uh, um, concerns in communication, not being able to communicate with their uh, children. Um, seizures was a major concern. Uh, gross motor skills was a major concern. And then there was a number of other concerns that were consistent across um, large percentages of, in the, of individuals. And from these, you know, we've been able to uh, glean what should be um, priorities for targeting in any future um, clinical trials. So the top five uh, concerns were lack of effective communication, seizures, lack of hand use or fine motor abilities, gross motor skills such as abnormal walking or balance issues, and then constipation. These patterns of concern uh, varied by age, uh, MECP2 mutation severity, clinical severity, and other underlying disease. 
And so what this tells us is that um, many of the concerns, uh, at parents adjust to some of the symptoms so that certain things become more or less important as uh, the children age. So David, you want to take back over? All right. So um, uh, looking back at uh, uh, Livia, um, so you know, in terms of multidisciplinary management, I mean, uh, in, in rec clinic, we try to deal as much as we can with uh, the GI symptoms. And uh, if they have constipation, put them on uh, stool softeners, osmotic laxatives, uh, stimulant laxatives. Um, we might monitor their, uh, uh, the curvature of their back. But at, at, you know, when we need help, we'll ask the gastroenterologist and the orthopedic surgeon for help. And we'll, like I said, as I mentioned, we'll manage the seizures, uh, movement disorders, and sleep disturbances. Um, and we'll maintain an uh, ongoing conversation with uh, uh, the family to uh, make sure we're addressing the issues that are most concerning at the moment and ask what resources the family will need. All right. Turning it back to Dr. Marsh, talk about uh, the new era of Rett syndrome treatment. Right. So one of the things that we haven't said yet is uh, that what is MECP2? So we said that the majority of people with Rett syndrome have mutations in MECP2. But what is MECP2? Well, MECP2 is a protein that binds and recognizes epigenetic marks on the DNA. It binds primar primarily methyl CPG um, bases, but it can also uh, bind um, methyl uh, CA and, and, and uh, CT marks. It's greatest, it's expressed in all cell types, but it's greatest expression is in neurons, where the belief is that it's really vital and critical for overall neuronal function and synaptic connections. Complete in animal models, complete loss of MECP2 results in a alteration of expression of hundreds of genes, but subtle changes in um, these uh, expression in these genes. But these uh, have been good models to actually start to look at the physiologic function of MECP2 and use these models for potential uh, therapeutic testing. The animal models that have been created have shown that they have many of the neurological and behavioral abnormalities that's seen in, in patients with RET. Most classically, if you lift a MECP2 knockout mouse up by the tail, it clasps its paws like the hand-wringing movement that we see in individuals. They also have seizures, gait abnormalities, their small growth, etc. So people have been able to use these animal models to show that if you restore MECP2 function, even as the animals are old and getting close to their uh, death, it can, it can prolong survival and reverse many of the features of the disease. This was most potently shown by a paper by Adrian Bird back in 2000 and... Ooh, what year was that now? 2007, where... Uh, he used a pre-recombinase uh, method to restore the gene and show that you can prolong survival. And, you know, when I started training, the thought was for all these neurodevelopmental disorders, there was nothing you can do. But this was the first evidence that some of these conditions could potentially be reversible. Um, this, these, this study and other studies that showed that AV-based delivery of gene could show that there is meaningful therapy, uh, meaningful room for improvement of development in uh, individuals with RAT. However, as I you know, mentioned before, there is a cognate uh, condition called MECP2 duplication syndrome, suggesting that there's a small window by which to regulate MECP2. 
too little results in Rett syndrome and related uh, conditions, and too much leads to MECP2 duplication syndrome. So, you know, really, as I mentioned, MECP2 is a, a DNA binding protein. And here's a nice video which looks at um, the, the, a 3D reconstruction of MECP2. And we'll play that now for you. Functional MECP2 depletion is hypothesized to be a major contributor to the CNS manifestations in Rett syndrome. MECP2 mutations lead to the dysregulation of several molecular processes and mechanisms, including brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, microRNA, and glutamatergic pathways, leading to impaired neuron growth. BDNF is a signaling protein and member of the neurotrophin family of growth factors that influences survival, development, and improved function of neurons. BDNF stimulates the differentiation of progenitor cells to form neurons, supports the survival of existing neurons, and encourages growth and strengthening of new neurons through axonal and dendritic sprouting, leading to increased connections with other neurons. It also strengthens the synapse through increasing numbers of receptors, resulting in improved cognitive function. The lack of BDNF results in the weakening of synaptic strength, making neurons more vulnerable to stressors and atrophy. It leads to a disruption of signaling, decreasing synaptic connections required for efficiency in memory and learning. MicroRNAs are involved in glial and neural cell type determination, migration of newly formed neurons, neuronal cell type determination, neuronal polarization, axonal formation, and dendrite branching. Interruption of microRNA pathways in the CNS may result in gross abnormalities, for example, ataxia and gait abnormalities associated with cerebellar impact. The exact interplay of molecular interactions is complex and remains unclear. MECP2 deficiency disrupts processes involving glutamatergic synaptic responses and astrocyte, glial cell, microglia, and oligodendrocyte functions. Dysfunctional glutamate signaling can result in neurotoxicity and negatively alter brain function. So that was a really cool uh, video with wonderful graphics, kind of going over the variety of different pathways that are dysregulated when MECP2 is gone. And that's just highlights a few of them that this lack uh, or reduction in BDNF that has been found in individuals in mice with rat changes in microRNA production, as well as changes in glutamatergic um, transmission all that together in a way that we still fully don't understand lead to the clinical features in rat. Based upon our understanding of this uh, biology, a number of different therapies have been tried and are still being advanced for rat syndrome. And recently, in March of 2023, the first FDA-approved treatment for rat syndrome occurred. Um, this uh, drug, trifinitide, uh, had priority review. It was an orphan drug and was fast-tracked through the FDA, though it had a long clinical development period with a number of uh, phase one, phase two, and then a pivotal phase three trial. The dosing for trifinitide is weight-based, um, and it's administered orally or via gastrostomy tube and given twice a day. So trifinitide is a synthetic analog of um, it's like, like growth factor one. It's a tripeptide, a glycine proline glutamate, um, tripeptide of IGF-1. And the thought is that it can normalize neuronal and glial function, um, which would then ultimately improve, uh, symptoms 
in rat. And this was shown in animal models and then in the pivotal clinical trial uh, that led to its FDA approval. The exact mechanism of how trifinotide works is unknown. There's some thought that it works through this BDNF pathway with IGF-1 increasing BDNF levels, but the exact mechanism is unknown, potentially related to altering neuroinflammation, normalizing synaptic protein synthesis, dendritic morphology, and neuronal signaling. As I said, there were um, two phase two trials, one in adults, one in children, uh, one in kids with RET, and both demonstrated safety and tolerability, and both showed evidence of efficacy in both caregiver and clinician-supported rated scales. And based upon the results of these two um, phase two trials, uh, a phase three trial moved uh, forward. Um, The phase three trial was called the LAVENDER trial. It was a 12-week placebo-controlled trial in patients age 5 to 20. Uh, 187 patients were enrolled and randomized to either trifinitide or placebo. The primary endpoints were changed from baseline in either the Rett syndrome behavioral questionnaire. This is a questionnaire that had been developed years before to primarily um, differentiate individuals, uh, girls with autism versus girls with RET, but it had been used in a number of other um, uh, physician-sponsored trials to look at changes in RET syndrome. And it's a 45-item caregiver scale that addresses some of the key symptoms associated with RET syndrome, those key symptoms that David talked about earlier. The other primary endpoint was the clinician global impression of improvement. This is a seven-point scale that the clinicians filled filled out. And for this trial, all of the clinicians who were involved went through training to have anchors that based the change uh, so that we all thought about change uh, equally. All the people who were part of the trial thought about change equally. And after the double-blind phase, individuals were uh, rolled over to open-label. But now here I'm showing you the uh, primary endpoints for the double-blind placebo-controlled trial. So as you see, that at baseline, uh, both placebo and uh, were at their baseline. By two weeks, there was a change in the RSBQ, both in placebo and trifinitide. But over the subsequent eight weeks, individuals who um, were blinded to trifinitide continued to show improvement in their RSBQ, whereas individuals with placebo went back uh, to baseline. When you look at the subscores of the RSBQ, which uh, include issues of general mood, breathing, hand problems, etc., you see that all of them move towards uh, trifinitide being better. And the, the sum or the, the, the mean of all these together was significantly different between trifinitide and placebo. The second primary endpoint or the co-primary endpoint, as I said, was this caregiver global impression of improvement. And this also, um, so four means that there's no change, three means mild improvement, and you see that over the, from the two weeks to the 12 weeks, there is a significant difference between placebo and trifinitide in the caregiver global impression of change with uh, individuals on trifinitide um, having a, going down to 3.5, where individuals with placebo were basically still at four. Um, and this was um, statistically significant. So the co-primary endpoints were positive, and a number of the secondary supportive endpoints 
also were in line with the primary endpoints. So besides uh, the studies showing efficacy, there were some treatment-related uh, adverse events. The primary one was diarrhea. Um, so um, in trifinitide, 80% of the individuals had diarrhea, um, but 18%, uh, 19%, 20% um, had diarrhea in placebo, and that was significantly different. Um, this actually resulted in withdrawal from the trial in about 12% of the individuals, but the diarrhea was self-limited and resolved completely after withdrawal of trifinitide. Um, because of the diarrhea, early on, a diarrhea management plan was initiated across all the sites. And with that diarrhea management plan, um, patients no longer uh, dropped out because the diarrhea was well-controlled. So in the end, about 75% of the patients receiving trifinitide completed the study. There was, uh, there's been concern that this quote-unquote, unblinded the study. But when you do the analysis of those who didn't have diarrhea, um, you still see the same uh, direction of, of change suggesting that the study really wasn't uh, unblinded and the diarrhea didn't judge, uh, didn't result in um, biasing the study. The other major um, side effect was vomiting um, that also occurred more in trifinitide and placebo and with using this, we're coming up with ways to try to mitigate the vomiting that is seen with um, treatment of the drug. So um, besides the, the, the registration, the phase three registration trial, as I said, individuals were able to roll over into the LILAC study, um, which was a, up to a year. And then the LILAC 2 study, which was a continued open label extension phase that went out until the drug was approved and people were able to be moved on to um, commercial product. At the same time, um, there was a daffodil study, which you looked at uh, subjects aged between two and five. And this was a phase two, three study, really looking for pharmacokinetics and um, safety in this younger age group with the idea that the earlier you potentially can treat in RET, so the earlier you recognize it, the earlier you can treat, potential more impact you could potentially have on the outcome of these individuals. The data from the LILAC study, the, the first open-label extension um, study, has been presented in abstract form at a number of RET syndrome meetings. And the interesting part of this data is that from 12 weeks on to 26 weeks, there's a continued improvement in both the, the caregiver global impression of improvement as well as the RSPQ. And those who were on placebo for the um, placebo-controlled trial who switched over in the open label to the drug had the same uh, level of improvement as those who were on the drug originally, so showing consistent results across the board uh, with these trials. There are other um, exciting treatments that are in the pipeline for RET. So um, a drug that David mentioned called blarscarsamine, which is a sigma-1 receptor agonist and a muscarinic receptor uh, modulator, has been in a phase three trial. Um, the trial was completed in June, and we're still awaiting uh, the results of this trial. The trial occurred primarily in Australia, England, and Canada. So we're still awaiting the results of this trial. There was a small phase two uh, study for ketamine. Uh, this was a really short uh, study just to really look at safety and and the ability to use ketamine in the RET population. And um, the data is being analyzed and looking for uh, the results. 
uh, of this uh, study. Like I said, historically, there's been a lot of individual studies that uh, individual investigators have performed with different molecules. Uh, one of the larger ones was a study done out of Johns Hopkins using dextromethorphan, otherwise known as cough syrup, uh, which is an NMDA receptor antagonist. Um, and this study uh, was completed way back when. It did not reach its primary endpoint, but I'm at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a number of patients who went down for the study at Johns Hopkins and they swear that the dextromethorphan helped them. So some of them have been on it for years because they swear that it helped them. Um, more interestingly, the first two gene therapies, so gene replacement therapies for Rett syndrome have um, begun. Um, one is a company called Tasha. Uh, its first uh, trial is a phase one, two safety and efficacy trial in ages 18 and up which uses intrathecal administration of an AV9 capsid with a vector that encodes um, the mini MECP2 gene and a microRNA to, to make sure that the expression doesn't go too high or too low. And then another company called Neurogene that also uses an AV um, uh, vector but uses the full-length MECP2 gene. This is uh, being done in children age 4 to 10, and its administration is via intracerebral uh, ventricular uh, administration. All right, so let's go back to Madison and Livia. So, you know, what are the indications for treatment as they apply to these patients? Um, does patient age or duration of disease make a difference? And, you know, this is something that we're still learning. The phase 2 trials were um, had ages, the the phase three trial was five to 20. There was a phase two, uh, three trial from two to five. So both of these uh, patients would be indicated based upon their age. And we don't know whether the duration of uh, disease makes a difference. In the phase three trial, um, the age of the patient did not seem to have a very big difference in uh, either of the primary endpoints. And then, you know, how do you counsel the families to set appropriate expectations? And, you know, the, the diarrhea is a significant, um, side effect that we counsel families to how to manage it and what to expect and how to deal with it. And that we expect to see, um, small but significant, uh, changes in many of the core features of RET. And so you need to balance you know, how they tolerate the medication with these changes that we're seeing in the drug, um, with the drug. So as I said, you know, managing diarrhea, intrafinitide is something that has to be um, thought about before you prescribe the drug. And um, there has been a, uh, a, within the paper that was published in Nature Medicine and a follow-up uh, diarrhea management paper in Expert Opinions in Orphan Drugs, uh, we came up with a plan that includes discontinuation of laxatives prior to starting the drug, initiation of fiber sub supplements um, before starting the drug, and then using antidiarrheal medications, Imodium, um, upon seeing diarrhea. And then, if needed, scaling back on the dose of trifinitide or holding the dose of trifinitide until the diarrhea resolves. Um, some of the things that are just good habits in terms of dealing with diarrhea is getting a baseline um, pattern of, uh, of bowel movements prior to trifinitide initiation, switching uh, pills for liquid med medications, uh, 
adapting the diet to smaller, more frequent meals, avoiding high-fat foods, um, and then monitoring uh, your patients for dehydration if they develop diarrhea. So what are our take-home messages? Well, Rett syndrome is a rare, debilitating condition that varies in its presentation. It primarily affects girls and women, but we know now that uh, boys can be affected too. There are consensus guidelines that provide recommendation for surveillance and primary care uh, treatment uh, for individuals with Rett, and that there's a need for collaborative care between pediatricians, neurologists, gastroenterologists, etc., in managing the complex multisystem disease that Rett is. That the Rett treatment paradigm that up to recently was all around just symptomatic care uh, has changed with the first FDA approval of a drug that targets the symptoms of Rett syndrome, and that this is an exciting time um, for Rett syndrome therapy, as there's a number of other small molecules as well as gene-based treatments that are coming down the pike to hopefully improve the lives of individuals with Rett. And with that, we'll we'll take your questions. Thank you. Yeah. um, So I've practiced pediatrics for over 30 years, and I take care of medically complex um, children. I've seen just about everything, yet I've never seen a Rett syndrome. Um, I can't believe pediatricians are missing this diagnosis because any child who comes in with regression of development is going to be hit on and sent all over the place. So um, I think you said only 17% were diagnosed by pediatricians or something like that. Yeah. So why I, why have I not seen one? Is it that weird? Uh, why only 17% of pediatricians actually make the diagnosis in something that we should really and truly, we would take notice of? Yeah. So one of the things we didn't say is what the incidence of rat syndrome is. So the incidence of rat syndrome is about 1 in 15,000 to 1 in 20,000 live births. So it is possible um, and likely that in a career that you might not see an individual uh, with rat. Um, so, you know, as the data showed, only 5% of individuals were diagnosed by their pediatrician. You know, it is, pediatricians are busy, you know, they um, refer them out quickly to neurologists who are then making the diagnosis. So that data is a little bit skewed. The pediatrician knew something was wrong, knew something was going on, and referred them appropriately to a neurologist or a geneticist who then made the diagnosis. So the data is a little bit skewed in that sense and uh, reduces the importance of what the the pediatrician did in the care of that individual. I have two two other quick questions. one is, um, you know, in talking about what parents wanted most, it wasn't so much communication, but really was a loud outburst of these kids um, that was, I mean, par- parents couldn't sleep. How did they manage the, those outbursts? What did they give them medication-wise to kind of control the outbursts? Well, sometimes we use uh, SSRIs to help if there's some underlying anxiety. We might use, you know, intermittent planazepam to help. Uh, reduced mood at times. Um, uh, for some other patients, we've used um, uh, other serotonin uh, agonists like busperone, um, and we can also use, you know, like anti-epileptic medication as mood stabilizers like uh, trileptol or alimictal. My last question: um, Once um, you, you see improvements in these kids on medication, is it going to be lifetime, or will we be able to? gradually, you know, take them off the medication? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And the answer is at this point, it's, it's lifetime of use of this drug to maintain 
the improvements that uh, we're seeing in them, that we expect that if you were to stop it, they would um, go back to where they were. We have a patient who was diagnosed with Klinefelter syndrome. He's an infant. Uh, he's going to see genetics uh, in December. Should we test him for MEC2? I, I mean, I, I, it depends what uh, other symptoms he's displaying. He's four months old. Yeah. He was diagnosed prenatally uh-huh. with XXY that was confirmed after birth. And now listening to your presentation, I am just wondering, should we test him for MEC2? I, I would follow his development and see how things progress before you know expanding the possible array of uh, diagnostic tests you could do. So. So there's um, some questions that have come in online. So David, uh, to ask you, what would be your treatment for the breathing dysregulation in rat? You know, treatment might be in quotes. You know, I think we have treatments for epilepsy, but when it comes to things like the breathing dysregulation, it's more uh, of a trial. You know, we can try things like agents that work on serotonin, uh, as we just mentioned for like anxiety. So SSRIs and buspirone have shown uh, some improvement in some patients. It's not, we haven't had any clinical trials demonstrating their efficacy. Other things that work for uh, breathing dysregulation in RET, carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, those are the things we'll just try. And it, it lots of times we don't uh, intervene at all if the if the breath holding is not interfering with the child's life, but if it's affecting their ability to eat meals because they're breath holding throughout a meal and they can't eat, that's that's important. Or if their breath holding uh, leads them to fall or to have a, an anoxic seizure, then it might require some more intervention. Yeah, I agree with that uh, completely. We try not to treat them, but in the cases where it really disrupts the quality of their life, then we try to treat, though none of the medications are perfect for it. Another question that came in is, um, would you treat an abnormal EEG in an individual with RAT? Uh, so, you know, I would say when at, at some point during their development, almost all girls and women and boys with RET syndrome will develop an abnormal EEG. If you do it early enough, their EEG may still be normal. But uh, over time, that EEG is going to become abnormal. And unless they're having clinical events, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't try to treat a drug, use a drug to try to treat the EEG. What would you say about that? I, I agree. You know, the, we know that there's a natural evolution of the EEG in rat that becomes very abnormal, and there's no evidence that treating the EEG will improve their outcome. And all the medications that you would tr- use to treat the EEG potentially have side effects, so I would not recommend uh, treating the EEG. And I think with that, we are done. Thank you very much for your time tonight. I hope you learned something. Thank you very much. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash UDJ 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Acadia Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated.